The Accounting Matters Podcast lives up to its name. Every other week, we bring you a new episode where we cover vital accounting topics that actually matter to accounting professionals. Each episode, we introduce a new topic and then highlight and discuss the key areas. And we hope you stick around for all things accounting from A to Z. Coming to you from the heart of Texas, this is Accounting Matters, the go-to podcast for accounting and finance professionals from your friends at Embark. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I'm Nicole Harger, Embark's National Quality Senior Director. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, the one and only Adam Olson, Embark's Accounting Advisory Practice Leader. Today, we are picking back up with Robbie Sundberg, Embark's Managing Director that oversees our ESG and sustainability services. So Robbie, last episode, we introduced the CSRD and ESRS standards, specifically we talked about which companies the directive and standards apply to and the time frame for adoption and reporting. So I figured we'd jump back in and let's start discussing the actual standards themselves. What should our listeners know here? Yeah, so first thing to know is that uh, <laughs> this, the first set of standards is sector agnostic. Uh, it includes 12 ESRSs uh, that cover the full range of sustainability matters specified in the CSRD. Um, and so the standards are composed of two cross-cutting standards and 10 topical standards covering a variety of ESG topics. Uh, each standard contains its own disclosure requirements and data points, uh, which I think we'll, we'll touch on just briefly here. All companies must comply with general requirements of ESRS 1 and then the general disclosure requirements of ESRS 2 regardless of materiality. After doing so, a company should then conduct a materiality assessment for the 10 topical standards uh, to determine which are material to the company. That's one change from the draft ESRSs. Um, initially, there were a couple of topical standards that were also required regardless of materiality, but that's a change here. Um, so for all 10 topical standards, um, that materiality assessment is, is a critical aspect of that. Um, and so if a topical standard is considered material, the company must report on the disclosure requirements of that standard. So across all of these standards, there are over 80. <laughs> so that's a big number, 80 disclosures outlined, which could include the need for potentially more than 1,100 data points. That sounds like um, quite the hurdle for companies <laughs> to comply with. Did the EC consider any ways to ease the burden as companies begin to tackle these requirements? I know you touched on some changes between the draft and the final bit. Yeah. Um, was there anything else that um, they considered to kind of help companies get the ball rolling? Yeah, so thankfully, yes. Uh, the European Commission acknowledged the high level of effort required for many companies to prepare for and report under the requirements of the CSRD and, and ESRSs. Uh, so therefore, they decided to allow certain phase-in uh, <laughs> options for, for all companies and additional phase-in options for companies with fewer than 750 employees. Uh, so for example, companies with 750 or fewer employees uh, may omit scope three GHG emission disclosures for the first year of reporting. Uh, so that's a huge relief for those companies. Uh, they may also omit reporting under ESRS E4, uh, which is biodiversity and, biodiversity and ecosystems, ESRS2, which is workers in the value chain, ESRS3, uh, S3 rather, uh, affected communities, and then ESRS S4, which is consumers and end users. Uh, and so they can do that for the first two years. Mm -hmm. The actual full text copy of the delegated regulation 
outlines all the phase and provisions uh, they offered in an appendix. So definitely encourage all of our listeners uh, to refer back to that resource as they navigate all of these uh, accommodations. Okay, so I'm sure those are accommodations are very welcomed by companies. So tell me a little bit, what did FRAG base their original draft standards on? Um, I know with other sustainability reporting rules and frameworks, we see a lot of references drawn from existing sources widely used for voluntary, voluntary sustainability reporting. Is that the case here? Yes, it is the, the same case here. So uh, the ESRSs are structured based on the pillars of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, so the TCFD framework. And as a result, some elements of the standards mirror the IFRS Sustainability Disclosure Standards, as well as disclosures under the SEC Climate Proposal, um, which both pull heavily from, from TCFD. And in fact, we're, we'll cover um, the ISSB um, IFRS S1 and S2 um, here soon in another podcast, and we'll see there too that um, there's a, a kind of close mirror there also. Um, and the requirements in these two general or cross-cutting standards, so ESRS 1 um, and ESRS 2, uh, will apply across sectors and across all topical standards. ESRS 1 sets forth key concepts and definitions, including value chain reporting, time horizons, and double materiality um, that are foundational uh, here um, to the sustainability reporting. ESRS 2 uh, includes required disclosures about the basis of preparation, as well as the four pillars from the TCFD framework of governance, strategy, impact, risk, and opportunity management, including the materiality assessment process, and then four uh, metrics and targets. So additional requirements under the four pillars are also included in the topical standards as well. Okay, so you mentioned double materiality. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so uh, double materiality is kind of a hot topic uh, right now. So double materiality is, is the concept um, that provides criteria for determining whether sustainability information is required to be disclosed under the CSRD. Uh, and the CSRD describes double materiali materiality as the requirement to report both on the impacts of the activities of the undertaking on people in the environment. So that's, again, that's the impact materiality. Uh, and then also on how sustainability matters affect the undertaking. So that's the, the financial materiality component. Uh, impact materiality refers to positive and negative sustainability-related impacts connected with an undertaking's business. Uh, and this will require significant judgment for companies unfamiliar with this exercise again. Um, Which is a lot of companies. <laughs> yes. So so many companies that have, even if they've been doing sustainability reporting, mm -hmm. um, primarily looking at it through that financial materiality lens. Um, and so sustainability information meets the criteria of double materiality if it is material from the impact perspective, the financial perspective, or from both perspectives. And according to the language of uh, CSRD or the language included in the CSRD, companies would need to consider each materiality perspective in its own right and then disclose information necessary to understand how sustainability matters affect them and information necessary to understand the impact they have on people and the environment. The double materiality concept is also a key difference from other sustainability reporting standards and rules. So namely um, that put forth um, by the ISSB and the SEC, uh, where reporting is driven primarily by financial materiality concepts. Uh, and so uh, this approach to materiality acknowledges the need of stakeholders beyond investors um, and other capital providers uh, and it leverages 
definitions, steps, and concepts from uh, the Global Reporting Initiative um, approach to impact materiality. So that from GRI, um, and so that's uh, that's another place that companies that are reporting under GRI may already be moving towards some kind of some form of double materiality as well. Okay, so I know climate disclosures and reporting, while only one of the twelve standards is significant and is one. Many of the other rules focus on solely, again, the SEC and the ISSB. Can you talk a bit about the requirements and the standards and maybe how it does or does not compare to other climate disclosure rules or standards out there, Adam, to you? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Gladly. So the climate disclosure requirements in ESRS E1, um, they are more robust than current voluntary reporting, and they would go beyond the requirements that are outlined by the IFRS sustainability disclosure standards, as well as the proposal from the SEC. So, you know, reporting entities that maybe fall into the purview of multiple rules, may want to start with the CSRD since it is the (laughs) most vast as far as requirements, and then you can tailor yourself down from there. Uh, So just some examples of, you know, what I mean by more vast requirements. So the SEC rule, for example, would only require disclosure of a greenhouse gas emission reduction target if the company has actually made one. Uh, the ESRSs, on the other hand, they would actually require companies to disclose whether and how they have set any emissions reduction targets. And if not, they'd have to go and further disclose if no targets have been established and why. So really kind of full transparency, not just stating if you have, you have to really explain what you haven't done as well. Um, another key difference is around organizational boundaries, which are you know a, an important concept when you're thinking about how you report on your emissions. So the ESRS requires the operational control approach to be used, whereas the SEC aligns with financial reporting statement um, boundaries. And the ISSB actually provides flexibility in how a company establishes its boundaries. So again, even if you um, if you have to report under multiple frameworks or under different regulations, like your emissions disclosures can also look different just based on how boundaries are defined under different rules. Um, but diving in specifically to like what the ESRS E1 has, I mean, there's a number of climate disclosures. So like, you know, just some that we'd, we'd highlight here. So there's disclosures that are outlined in the standard about the resilience of the company's strategy and business model, including how any scenario analyses are used to inform, um, you know, any physical or transition risks or opportunities that the entity might have over the short, medium and long term. You know, they have to talk about any policies or actions that they have taken or they plan to take for any climate change mitigation. There's also performance measures that are included in there. And like to no one's surprise, you got to do the scope one, two, three emissions disclosures. That's a a critical element of a climate disclosure. Um, And then similar to like some other climate rules out there, you know, there's also an intensity metric. So just looking at kind of GHG emissions for some type of monetary unit, um, typically revenue. Um, reconciliation of any amounts that are used in metrics to those that are included in the financial statements are also a requirement. So really kind of drawing the connection between the financial statements and, and, and these disclosures as well. And then, you know, disclosures on anticipated financial effects from material, physical and transition risks um, and opportunities There's also required disclosure. Um, so like I said, there's, there's a, and that's obviously not an exhaustive list. There's a number <laughs> of other things in there. And and, you know, I think a lot of people are focused on climate, just given some of the other big rules that people are thinking through. But, you know, this is just an example of, of one topical um, 
kind of standard and they all have their own requirements and data points. So it's a, it's a long exercise to really start kind of combing through each of those. Did the EC change any of the proposed disclosure requirements made by FRAG before they finalized the ESRSs? They did. And I think, and Robbie, I think kind of, um, alluded to it when he was discussing earlier. So, you know, one thing the commission was very really intentional about when they were before they finalized kind of the the draft that FRAG put forth was um, really thinking about allowing more flexibility and what information is required and making it relevant for each reporting entity's particular circumstances. So in other words, they wanted to make more things subject to materiality and allowing companies to omit information that they have determined after doing kind of a robust double materiality exercise that is not relevant to them or their stakeholders. Um, and you know, clearly those that provision is really just to help reduce the costs, the efforts to, you know, compile a lot of this information, right? It's it's no easy undertaking, as we've said before. <laughs> um and also, you know, there were a number of proposed standards that also were mandatory and they removed certain mandatory ones to non-mandatory and made some of these voluntary, really the only reporting requirements that um, are not subject to kind of a materiality kind of assessment is really just what's outlined in ESRS 2. Um, all the other topical standards, I think, as Robbie said before, is, you know, those are subject to that double materiality lens. Um, and then the same with some of the, the data points themselves. So there were also a number of mandatory data points that FRAG outlined. Um, they've converted a number of those into voluntary data points. So just, again, helping reduce some of the, uh, the burden on certain aspects of the topical standards that companies would have had to have gone through. Okay. So speaking of burden, um, does FRAG plan to provide more guidance or support as companies plan to implement these standards to kind of help ease some of that burden? Yeah, they've been transparent about, you know, a lot of people have raised not necessarily concerns, but just like, hey, you know, we're, we're going to do this. We, we know we need to do this. We want to do this, whatever, you know, each individual reporting entity's circumstances or views are. Um, but we, we need some support here. Um, so FRAG is has committed to like periodically publishing some technical application guidance out there. So obviously non-binding, but you know, whether it's interpretive guidance, application examples, things like that, they've committed to doing that. Um, and, and the commission, so the European commission has also been, you know, real adamant about making sure that FRAG prioritizes development of guidance around materiality assessments, because that's kind of a big gating factor for what actually is uh applicable to reporting entities is really having a robust materiality assessment performed um so you know some some guidance on how companies should go about thinking through that especially since so many are you know we're just frankly a lot of people are familiar with the concept of financial materiality but this whole impact materiality thing if you haven't been using that as part of your some voluntary reporting it, it's it's definitely a new concept i think people struggle to get their their um head around so some some developmental guidance around that as well as any reporting as it relates to value chains um so you know there's i would say be on the lookout for stuff to come and and, and pay attention to what frag is is releasing because hopefully there'll be useful information that's um coming forth to help people um kind of apply the standards and implement them in a timely fashion okay so we're talking about a lot of data a lot of information um, I imagine investors are going to want some level of assurance of what companies are reporting on. 
Ravi, can you talk a little bit about what the CSRD actually requires here from an insurance perspective? Yeah, so the CSRD would include a mandatory assurance obligation for all re reported sustainability information, including the s disclosures required under the EU taxonomy regulation. So we didn't really touch on the EU taxonomy regulation, but there's a kind of a broader suite of um, EU taxonomy um, regulations, specifically as relates to um, sustainability. Um, and so uh, the CSRD requirements begin with limited assurance and expand to reasonable assurance at a later date. So again, kind of paralleling what we're seeing elsewhere. Um, and this is a significant change from the current state as the Audit requirements under the NFRD, um, the non-financial reporting directive that we talked about in our in our last episode, um, and is that's limited to the existence of disclosures. Um, so with no mandatory audit requirements over the content itself. Um, and so uh, to add a little bit more context for for comparing and contrasting um, this to some of the other um, rules, regulations, standards that, that are out there. So. Um, the SEC's climate rule, so the SEC's proposed disclosures, and of course, at the time of this recording, we're still waiting for the, the final SEC climate rule. Um, hopefully, we'll get that soon. But um, so the SEC's proposed disclosures included in the financial statements would be within the scope of the financial statement audit with additional attestation proposed only on the scope one and scope two greenhouse gas emission disclosures um, for large accelerated and accelerated filers. And so. What that means is some, some types of filers excluded from that. Scope three, of, of course, excluded from that. Um, and then uh, for the IFRS sustainability disclosure standards, uh, the level of assurance required uh, will be established by each of the individual jurisdictions there. I will add for those not familiar with reasonable and limited assurance. So reasonable assurance would be equivalent to the level of assurance most accounting and finance teams are familiar with in an audit of their financial statements. So this includes the evaluation of the design and implementation of relevant controls. So limited assurance, on the other hand, can be compared to a review of financial statements. Um, the procedures performed are substantially less in extent um, than reasonable assurance and include identifying and focusing on areas of increased risk that the information may be materially misstated. Um, so Robbie, I do have a question about who can perform the assurance engagements. Does the rule limit that only to public accounting firms, similar to what we typically see in financial statement audits? Uh, so the CSRD really specifies that a company's financial statement auditor would be able to provide assurance, but the EU member states will decide during that that transposition uh, process, uh, whether companies may use another auditor or an independent assurance service provider that we see kind of commonly as it relates to um, sustainability reporting. Uh, use of others would be subject to appropriate accreditations as directed in the CSRD, as well as oversight and quality requirements equivalent to those in place for financial statement auditors. Okay, so I know we could keep going more and more into the depths of this directive and the standards, but let's wrap today switching to what, what companies need to be thinking through next. Um, how should they be preparing? Frankly, it sounds like a lot. Ravi? You're right, it is a lot. Um, <laughs> no and, lies there. <laughs> uh, a readiness assessment um, is, is really the best way for a company to get a clear picture of where they stand um, and where all the possible deficiencies exist for them that need to be addressed uh, in order for them to comply with with CSRD and the, and the ESRSs. Uh, one of the logical first steps 
um, though, for them to take is a scoping evaluation of their boundaries for CSRD reporting, uh, looking at where do they where do they trip the requirements that reporting may be necessary, and, and what strategies uh, they might consider to comply um, if numerous entities are in scope within the organization. So, kind of going back to the conversation we had in our last episode around just all the complexities associated with scoping. Depending on the scoping outcomes, different timelines for compliance may be. A applicable as we as we talked about in our in our previous episode and uh, and this will be clearly be more crucial for large multinational companies with more complex uh, organizational structures uh, but even less complex entities should perform this with with due process because they may have entities they may not think are in scope that turn out to be in scope or they may have parent level um, requirements or obligations that uh, yeah. that they haven't yeah, perhaps definitely. considered yeah, and I would just add kind of equally as important after the scoping exercises, you know, tying back into that double materiality assessment we keep harping on here. So really companies, you know, kind of once you know you're in scope entities and it's determining what impacts and risks are relevant, not only to investors, but other stakeholders. Um, and then as we mentioned around assurance, you know, just kind of thinking about this, if a topic is identified as material using that double materiality lens, then naturally it needs to be disclosed if it's being disclosed then it will need to be assured and then companies will need to make sure that they've actually got processes and controls in place to make sure that they are assurance ready for the information that they are then disclosing and reporting on so once you have your entity scoping kind of set like what robbie walked through and then the materiality lens figure it out so that development materiality assessment this is when you really then start doing the actual like kind of current state readiness review so as part of that, you then look at kind of each of those topical ESRS standards. So the 10 standards to see what may or may not be required to be disclosed. And I think as you go through that process, what's gonna naturally happen is you're gonna identify a lot of new processes, controls, for sure data points that you need to gather. Um, and this is gonna be for a lot of companies in ways they've never had to have done before. And so there's just, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of work that needs to be done in order to assure you've got processes and things like that and, and controls in place to, to gather that data and accurately report on it. And like I said, if you're reporting on it, it's going to be subject to assurance requirements. So, you know, you really have to be mindful that um, what you're ultimately pulling together is what you consider kind of audit quality information. Um, so there is a lot to do. You know, companies definitely need to be thinking about this stuff now, even if like, you know, we talked about an adoption timeline where some of these entities may not be pulled in for, you know, a couple of years down the road, non uh, EU parents. So US parent companies, for example, I've gotten told in 2028 information to maybe start like worrying about some of this, but like, you know, what we recommend to everybody with any of these different, you know, sustainability reporting requirements is there's a lot of work to be done. So uh, don't short side, um, you know, putting this off and then, find yourself in a pinch when it comes time that you need to comply and you recognize that this is a big, a big effort that really needs to um, be well planned and, and be thoughtful about how the companies approach it. So that was a lot of great information we went through today. Um, a ton of information to digest for our listeners. If you would like to continue the conversation, please don't hesitate to reach out to either Adam or Robbie on LinkedIn until next time. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Accounting Matters. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge.
Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.